0: This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Valeria Luiselli, essayist and fiction writer. Her books include Sideways, Faces in the Crowd, Tell Me How It Ends, An Essay in 40 Questions, The Story of My Teeth, and The Lost Children Archive. She was born in Mexico and grew up in the U.S., South Korea, Costa Rica, South Africa, Spain, France, India, and Mexico. Her novel, The Lost Children Archive, tells the story of an unnamed family of four who drive from New York to Arizona to follow and document stories. The father is making a sound documentary about the downfall of the Apaches and the death of Geronimo. The mother is making a sound documentary about the immigration crisis at the border with a particular focus on the separation of parents and children. We began the interview with Valeria Luiselli, talking about her upbringing and her parents.
1: My parents worked in NGOs for a long time, and that's how we began moving around from place to place. Well, actually, for the first time we ever left Mexico, I was two years old, and we we came here to the U.S. Um, My father had studied a Ph.D. in Madison, Wisconsin, so... He came here, I guess, to finish his dissertation. I actually don't know. And I've I, I, I should I should know. I should ask him why why we were here when I was two. Um, but after that it was NGOs mostly. And then in 1989, um, there was a new president in Mexico, um, the not very well esteemed Salinas de Gortari, and him and my father knew each other. From childhood, my father had been in politics earlier on when he was very young, and I I, I think they didn't like each other very much. Um, so Salinas kind of I think I guess it was like a far away so close kind of move. So he was sent as far away as possible from Mexico, which was South Korea then, um, a country that didn't have at that moment too many uh, too many relations with Mexico, but but when I say far away, so close, I also mean kind of close, kind of under the umbrella of the, of the Mexican government, right? Um, so he was a diplomat there. And then some years later, uh, he was asked uh, as well uh, through through NGOs to be one of the international observers in the Mandela elections in South Africa. And so he... he he was there. He he participated as a as an observer in the elections. And after that, he was asked to open up the first Mexican embassy. He was asked by the Mexican government to uh, to open up the first Mexican embassy. There wasn't any embassy uh, during apartheid, of course. Mexico never supported the the apartheid. So so then we I ended up moving with my father there in 1994. At the same time as my mother decided to. To uh, move to Chiapas in southern Mexico, um, joining the, the Zapatista uh, army. But she, she, she became very involved with the Zapatista movement and insurgents, and she decided she had a, a political calling and, and moved to Chiapas. So and, and after that, when I, I ended up living in India, um, but that was by myself in a boarding school. So, uh, yeah, as, as you can hear, just different reasons, different moments of, of life.
0: That, I, I mean, I could see how that international and also probably liberal bent in your family really influenced your writing.
1: You know, more than liberal, I would say, I mean, my mom was pretty radical, or is, and um, like radical left, um, and I... I come from a lineage of women um, who have always worked very closely with indigenous communities in Mexico um, and in political movements related to the defense of rights of indigenous peoples in Mexico. So My my grandmother was very involved with a community in Puebla. My my great-grandmother had been uh, uh, from Pachuca nearby. And she was, she was Otomi, and an indigenous Otomi woman. And from her down, basically, all the women in my family have, in different senses, been very involved politically with, with, the, with their communities.
0: Would you consider The Lost Children Archive activist fiction?
1: <laughs> I don't know. I, don't, I mean, I don't know that that exists. I think I, I, am, I am an activist, I, but I am also... A writer and I'm also an educator and so I think all those things intersect to produce whatever it is that I write. I I don't I don't think and I'm very careful about not writing fiction from the platform of my I would say I mean definitely from the platform of my politics but not as a way to state my politics right I think that fiction needs to breathe and needs to flow and when there is a very clear political objective in fiction that often suffocates prose and suffocates rhythm and and other important components of of, of the freedom that that, that that fiction I think should have so I I, I don't I actually stopped writing this novel at some point because I realized that I was really, really angry politically with what was happening in the border of the U.S. and Mexico. And I was using, was trying to use the novel as a vehicle for my political standpoints, and I was really just killing it. So I stopped and I wrote Tell Me How It Ends, a much more straightforward political slash personal essay on immigration and particularly on on child refugees and once I I did that once I was able to to put in a in a non-fictional very straightforward form what I thought about the refugee crisis in the border I was able to go back to the novel and and write it without having to I don't know explain the history of U.S. interventions in Central America and 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 so on and so forth.
0: The Lost Children Archive tells the story from two different points of view. First, um, a mother and then a son. And it's a family of, of four. It's a mixed family. So they married later and each came with a child. They're all unnamed. And the man and wife are like documentarians of sound. And they are going on a road trip from New York to the West to Arizona to document the husband is documenting the apache downfall and geronimo's death and the echoes of that and the mother mm-hmm. is focusing on the border crisis and the children that are separated from their parents at the border i would just add that the the family is going
1: through a crisis of its own the narrator and and wife uh, is 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 splitting from from her husband or in a moment in which they will probably uh, decide to, to leave each other. And that, that crisis grows as they drive deeper into the country.
0: So how did you alight on the main narrator, the, the female mother's voice? And how did you begin this? We're so into her mind and her feelings. And we, there's a, a lot of empathy that we can feel because it's so deep. It's a good question. I I usually take notes
1: for a very long time before I start writing a new book. And when I say a long time, I mean a year at least. With with this book, it was a year. And, and that doesn't mean that I stopped writing notes uh, when I started writing on the computer. But but um, but but first first before anything, there there was this long process of just note taking. And in fact, my notes are usually in at least Spanish and English and one of the, of the questions holding me back from, from just jumping in and, and, and starting to write the novel, like write at least on the computer and, and with a different kind of rhythm, was not knowing which of the two languages I needed to use for, for this particular novel. And um, it, was, it was really like a year, a year and a little bit after I started writing those notes that I, w- I was in Berlin and had some, I guess, linguistic distance from both languages. And I, I sat down and finally heard it very clearly in my, in my head. And by that time, I had accumulated a lot of observations about children, not necessarily my own about relationships, about the interaction between politics and or the sphere of, of, of politics and private family life and, and the way that the two worlds collide and, and are not at all, as, as sometimes seems, separate. And it was because I had, I, I guess, so many threads when I started writing, I was able to. It's as if it had already. Part of it had had already been kind of written, right? I mean, part of them. There was something that I, I was following something, some kind of thread, and there wasn't a, a a thread in terms of plot. I very very seldom uh, think about plot. Rather, I think about it as a way to solve, like, to get me from A to B, where A and B are usually. Questions or intuitions or, or kind of topics I want to explore, but, but but definitely not questions I want to answer, just
0: questions that I maybe want to just explore, right? Did you always know it was going to be in this voice?
1: Not always, but as soon as during that, that summer in Berlin I started writing, I, I knew that that was at least that was at least one of the of the voices. And I mean, I never know. Where I'm gonna go when I start a book, I don't know. I, I don't know what's gonna happen, and definitely don't know how it's gonna end. I have some very basic intuitions and some questions that I don't even know how to articulate very mm-hmm. in a very precise way. But it's a kind of question intuition that I that I want to explore, and that's how I jump into the text. And I I, I would see no other way for me to 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 to, to write because. I think knowing knowing too much is pretty boring, right? There's no. It's kind of when you set off on a on a journey, not knowing where you're going to exactly and what's going to happen is is part of the of the beauty, right? And the and the mystery and the the, the meaningfulness of of travel. And I think the writing, or at least for me, it's very similar. So I, I I didn't know, but I, at some point, as I told you, I, I heard that heard that voice and and was and it was able to carry me on. And at some point in the novel, I also realized that there had to be another voice aside from hers, because the novel, I realized at some point, was very much fundamentally about the interactions of stories that we pass on to children and then children pass back on to us, right? And how we thread the world or a version of the world in that interaction, right? I mean, after all, I guess, words are what connect our our minds, right? I mean, this conversation, this connection between your mind and mine and that of the readers is, is the threads of, of words, right? So that's what we have and the the novel explores that very insistently, right? The way we tell each other things, what we pass on with a story. So I knew at some point there had to be the other side of that that threading. And I thought about the little girl who was five years old in the story, but thought, I tried her voice a little bit, but it's very difficult to sustain a five-year-old narration, right? It's not... Um, I mean, it would probably be too cutesy second. It might be just very garbled or just, uh, a beautiful fragmented mess, but I, 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 needed something else. I didn't want it to be the, the narrator's husband for different reasons. I mean, partly because I guess, I mean, uh, they've talked, they've talked enough, right? Um, men in literature, we have so many male narrators, um, and, I, I, I wanted him to be a kind of silent figure, a silent presence. So I decided on the, um, on the little boy who who is, who is at the same time kind of talking to his sister, right? Passing on the stories that he, the story, the way he sees it to his little sister, uh, whom he thinks won't remember this, this road trip because she's only five. So th- his theory is that the kids start remembering things at six or recording them in their minds at six. He's very like uh, categorical about this. And so decides to to, to give his version uh, to his sister so that she can remember that version of the story.
0: So you were trying to choose a language and you wrote it in English. Did you ever feel like English was at a loss? Like were you ever frustrated because spanish could say something that english couldn't
1: i think that happens um to anyone who who speaks two languages or more there's always a language in which you can say something very precisely and clearly um and then another in which you can say something different uh precisely clearly but 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 not that other thing right there's there seems to be like opaque areas in one language that are not in another and just words that are perfectly suited for one particular concept in a language and not in another. So uh, there's always a frustration in bilingualism where one language is, is always not enough. But I guess the, the luminous side of that is that it forces you to seek ways in the language in which you're writing to say exactly what you want to say and and then really kind of carve something out of what you do have and and maybe take not the direct route but other unexpected more unexpected uh, perhaps more winding routes to say that what you know can be said precisely and clearly but you're not you're not finding it in, in a direct sense at least so I think that there there is there's there's some there's there's some something to be gained from that frustration too
0: one of the the major it's it's not just a trope it's also the structure of your book is the idea of an archive and documenting things is what makes an archive so I'm curious about your interest in documentation and then archiving them
1: yeah the, the it is it, a trope and it's also just that the, the structure of the novel is this it's very much the or the architecture of the novel has a lot to do with uh or or is in close resemblance to to how one might open up a, a, a box full of someone else's archive right and try to make sense of the of the bits and pieces and try to compose some kind of narrative, right? So I mean the novel is, as I was saying earlier, very much a meditation about composing stories, right? Threading narrative. And and I wanted the I wanted the bits and pieces with which I composed this story to be present in their raw way somehow. Believing that that in doing so. There can always be a very fertile interaction between a reader's mind and that material that's more raw and not not threaded already by me, not 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 arranged in a particular order by me, but but somehow just there, standing on its own. And 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 and, and so that, that reader's mind could think of of connections that I don't see. Between things or or can or can even just uh, perhaps feel curious about those things and, and be able to to then go off sort of exit the space of this book and and enter the space of someone else's work. I usually like books that take me to other books, not not books that are sort of closed in within themselves, but 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 are kind of open and porous and, and lead elsewhere. so I, I, I usually try to write things that do something similar.
0: One of the focuses is is childhood and parenthood and that child-adult relationship and what it means to be a parent and what it means to be a child with a parent, without a par- parent, um, children alone in the world. So these were a lot of the major questions that your novel asks and grapples with and asks the reader to think about. And I understand that you spent lots of time at the border, so that's a clear link to to what the things that you've been thinking about. But I'm also curious about just your interest in, in parenthood and children alone in the world.
1: Yeah, well, there's there's two 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 sides of that question, and and well, many possible answers, but but at least two possible answers. I mean, yes, on the, on the one hand, this novel is also a piece of archive, I guess, right? It kind of, it documents to a certain, it's not a novel about immigration, but it does document a moment in history that we are witnessing right now, right? Um, although I must say that when I started writing this novel, it was 2014, so long before, somehow feels like long before the Trump era. And not, n- not to say that, the, that there weren't um, separations at the border or atrocities happening to children who were attempting to seek asylum here it was all happening back then but of course the situation became a lot worse and it has become a lot worse in in the past couple of years but I never I never thought that what I was writing about was was going to continue to be a crisis, uh, an ongoing crisis, and that it was going to get worse. Right. So I wasn't really thinking about a, a about about some kind of timeliness. And in fact, I, I I would I would I would say again what I said earlier. Right? This is not a novel about immigration. It's a novel with immigration, right? And it and it grapples more with the question of how or w- of what bearing witness means. Than with the question of 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 the immigration crisis itself, right? And in in that sense, I was thinking about how how to tell the story of children going through the trauma of of having to flee their their homes, cross a country that is very dangerous for migrants, let alone minors, and then arrive in a country that that is not going to welcome them very easily. So I, I, I wanted to try to think about what happens in a child's mind, and and what happens to other, the children who who, who witness that. Where, how, how do they, how are they able to perform the operation of the sentimental operation of empathy and understanding? So one of the one of the things that I that I kept on thinking about while writing this novel was, was reenactment, not only as, as that kind of, I think a little bit bizarre cultural practice of reenactment, reenacting, uh, historical events for, for entertainment and, and consumption, but a more internal individual, psychological process of, of, of listening to a story about the past, uh, or even about the present but but the, but a story that seems distant for whatever reason and internalizing it so deeply that that you kind of re, reenact right through through play I mean children children integrate through games what a lot of what they what they hear right and what they see and what they witness so so a lot so a lot of what I was trying to do was to thread different but kind of... Or or not kind of different, but but certainly comparable historical moments in the u s, uh, such as the um, the relocation of 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 Native Americans and their how how they were displaced from their original lands. and the the f- also forced relocations and diaspora of people today arriving in the U.S. And, 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 and then in the, in the children's minds in the novel, these two things kind of mix up and get confused in their, in their games and they, they reenact at the same time an event such as r- r- having to run away from, from blue coats and, and white eyes and at the same time trying to hide from border patrol and, and, and finding a way uh, to survive in a desert, right? So all all these things get get kind of mixed up and combined in reenactment, and and perhaps I mean this is this is speculation on my on my part as a as a as a novelist and someone who's thinking about our deeper psychologies, but perhaps through that reenactment there is a the opportunity to 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 have a deeper reckoning and 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 a deeper deeper kind of empathy for for others.
0: You have this adult world and this children's world, and these adults don't really hide much from their children. It's not like they're trying to hide them from the pain of um, like the, the the mother is kind of helping a friend of hers who is separated from two of her children and two of her children cross the border alone or, or the um, death of Native Americans. They're honest about it with them. And you have a page in there where you're ta- the mother's kind of talking about how she's worried about what to tell her children and how to give them a story. And as she listens to the her son telling the story sort of back, she realizes kind of how much they understand what's going on around them. And I think it's something that generally in our world adults don't really consider. How much children can understand if you if you give it to them?
1: Totally. I mean, once I a few years ago, uh, my there, there was this horrible attack in New York where um, a man ran over uh, people who were on the bike lane, walking or jogging or on bikes here in New York. The next day after my daughter came back from school, my daughter must have been about six years old, then, and she came back from school, and I, and I wanted to, to see if, if, if it had been talked about at school or not, and what they had said and how they had handled something like that. And I asked her, hey, so did, you, did they say anything at school about something that happened? Did, I, w- I wasn't very elegant in asking the question. I didn't really find the, the, right, the right way. But I, I, I asked that, and she, she said to me, what, Mama, the story about, about this man that run over people with a truck— and I was like, uh, yeah, yes, exactly. What? How? How do you know? And she looked at me like, uh, like I was an alien of sorts. And she, she, she said, well, I read it in the New York Times. And I was like, okay, of course, right? The newspaper's there on the table always, and of course you read it in the newspaper. And there's the radio, and there's there's so many ways. So, what I mean, there isn't really a an easy answer to any of this. But I, I, I have come to think that hiding what happens in the world from, from children isn't, isn't a very good idea. Although, of course, trying to protect their right to innocence as much as possible is, is something that parents have the duty to do, right? But, or, I, or I feel that as a duty. But at the same time, I feel that it is a duty to give them the, the tools to understand violence, understand crisis, understand injustice, and feel some kind of agency in that understanding. And that, I think, comes through a very patient and very committed exercise in storytelling.
0: This book is destabilizing. It's it's a destabilizing narrative Not only this family's breaking up, you're commenting on immigration, but another aspect to it that I thought was interesting was that none of the four main characters have a name, so they're nameless. But then maybe three quarters of the way through or halfway through, they're each given a name basically by each other or the children that's more of a Native American name, like... Lucky
1: Arrow... Swift feather Memphis, Memphis. <laughs> yeah so I I I thought a lot about about naming and the weight of names in in storytelling right it's something that I've, I've thought about in other books before right in, in books that I've written my my characters are are often nameless in my first novel they are also unnamed Um, and then I wrote an entire book, the story of my teeth that, that, that is among other things, a meditation on the weight of names in the fabric of narrative, right? Names as sort of, I think a, a metaphor that, that, that kind of can help visualize what I'm saying is if you, if you have a piece of cloth and you throw a very heavy ball into it. It, it it bends and it bends in a certain way if you throw a very light one it bends in another because kind of the i mean i don't know that's a that was a metaphor or or like a visual metaphor that i think a teacher of mine used when i was 13 to explain how gravitational pull works and i think it just really stuck to me um and i and i, I kind of transposed it i i, I often transpose it to to, to how things within the fabric of, of storytelling work, right? And and a name has a very, it can have a very heavy weight in a narrative. It it um it it kind of uh, closes up a character immediately. It, it it has it it gives a a character a kind of solidness that I don't like creating so immediately when I start writing because I I don't know what my characters. Are like I don't know who they are really when I start writing, and I and I like to discover who they are as I move along in in my in my writing, and a name seems to just fix that very 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 solidly too early on. So I I like to work work with that ambivalence, right? And then um, and then what also happens in in in, in often in in narratives that. To tell the story um, of population that is going through uh, a moment of political violence or crisis, they are those sort of actors are often unnamed, right? And so I wanted everyone to be unnamed versus having a family, a four with, with all, everyone with, with names, and then sort of everyone else outside that world unnamed right so 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 yes the characters in this novel are unnamed and acquire names and then the the children because another thread in 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 this novel is is um is the thread about seven children migrating possibly towards the u.s it's it's not ever said explicitly but it's um it's seven children aboard a, a train migrating north and they also don't have names when when their story starts, but also acquire names uh, in a similar in a similar procedure. Kind of echoing, or t- the two things are kind of echoes of each other, I guess. And the, the the family giving each other new names, and then these children naming naming each other.
0: At the end, we talked a little bit about you changing points of view, and that um, you wanted to sort of. St- In the whole storytelling frame of stories being passed on and the little boy telling the story also at the end, it was a single sentence, 20 pages. Right. And so it had this breathlessness, which, you know, matches what I would think of when little kids are telling a story and they're so excited and they're like trying to get in every last detail. And it's just one thing after another.
1: Well, nothing has ever been so difficult um, <laughs> that, that I've written in, in my in my in my life. I think, I think I took, I mean, a disproportionate amount of time on those twenty pages. Maybe six months or so, just working on that every day. Um, six months out of four and a half years of, of writing this novel, it was it was it was difficult to find a way of threading kind of the heart of the story, really, um, where the story about the seven children migrating aboard a train and the story of the two kids that have gone on this road trip with their family, it's where they intersect and, and get kind of tied together. And the, what, is, what is happening in, in, that, in, in that scene, in, in, in that slice of the novel, to put it one way, is that um, the two children have gotten lost and are walking south in in Cochise, Arizona. And the children who had migrated aboard the train have managed to cross the border, and some of them haven't made it, but others have, and they are walking north in exactly the same geographical space. And so um, they are walking towards each other unknowingly, and at the same time as they walk, there is a there's a desert uh, storm, a thunderstorm that's that's forming. So the only point of reference that they have in common, what they their their common horizon, is is what they see up in the sky, which is this thunderstorm forming. And so the the narrative shifts back and forth between. These two viewpoints, sort of the, the kids walking south and the kids walking north. And it shifts when they when the when the narrator looks up at the sky and and sees the storm progressing, right? Um, it's It's one sentence that 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 kind of beats with the rhythm of of walking for a very long time under very difficult conditions. There's a, there's a kind of timelessness because no one knows when this trek across the desert is going to end. So there's, it's time seems that it's just kind of dragging on um, and there's a lot of um, or repetition, repetition in the, in the in syntactic forms and, and in vocabulary um, as, as in the imagery and the, the plants and the and the and the animals that, that the kids are 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 seeing around them
0: the focus of both parents in this is that is sound. They are sound documentarians.
1: I think that sound as opposed to visual documentation allows for a different pace in our in our interaction. To to whatever is being has been documented, there's a immediacy of of, of visual documentation that 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 we uh, consume without necessarily stopping and thinking, right? Of course, there's 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 there are exceptions and 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 there are images that 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 we can that we need to stand before and 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 look. And look twice, and look three times, but um, there's something in sound that's just different. You have you 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 can't really you can't hear at a glance, right? Sound moves with time, and I I was interested in exploring the that kind of slowness that seems to be missing from from so much in our lives. I'm a I'm a radio junkie, by the way. I, I listen to the radio more than I see movies or or videos or anything. That's kind of also just the the way that I connect to the world. And I, I and I also think that sound as opposed to image, because we've been so exposed to to terrible things in in, in to seeing terrible, horrifying things, sound has has a you know different effect. I, I don't know if, if if you remember, but last summer there was that audio from that someone captured uh in the in the border while children are being separated from their parents and and placed inside the perreras the cages and the kids are are crying and some of them are very composed actually and giving giving a one of them is giving out his aunt's or her aunt's um, phone number and i don't I, I don't know if, if you if you heard it but it was it was a it was a document that haunted me for a very long time um, it was I had actually actually already finished writing the draft of the novel then but 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 I thought then hearing that well there's 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 some deeper way in which sound reverberates in us no pun intended um, and and I think that that this novel makes a a case for for sound and and for for listening rather than than just sound and abstract.
0: Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? <laughs>
1: well, okay, I mean, there's several different things that I could read, and I I've been thinking of. Actually, was in the library today. Uh, I I've been working in in the library this past month just because. Uh, I'm about to go off on a book tour and, and become an astronaut and feel that I'm going to disconnect. And I, so I'm, and I spend my, my days in the library just kind of regathering, right, grouping myself. Um, and I, w- I was looking for several things. And, and one of the, the essays that I, I like most is this essay by Sei Shonagon, the um, Japanese writer. I should tell you the year she was born. It's. Very, very old. Say Sharonagon, who was born in 1966 A.D. Um, and there's this essay called "Hateful Things," which is really like a list, but it's um, it's almost like a. I mean, it's a it's a list, and it's a document of of the things she finds unbearable, right, or hateful, as as the translation says. I hate the sight of men in their cups who shout, poke their fingers in their mouths, stroke their beards, and pass on the wine to their neighbors with great cries of, have some more, drink up. They tremble, shake their beards, twist their faces, and gesticulate like children who are singing we're off to see the governor. To envy others and to complain about one's own lot, to speak badly about people, to be inquisitive about the most trivial matters, and to resent and abuse people for not telling one, or if one does manage to warm out some facts to inform everyone in the most detailed fashion, as if one had known all from the beginning. Oh, how hateful. One is just about to be told something interesting when a baby starts crying. A flight of crows circle about with loud caws. An admirer has come in a clandestine visit, but a dog catches sight of him and starts barking. One feels like killing the beast. One has been foolish enough to invite a man to spend the night in an unsuitable place. And then he starts snoring. One has gone to bed and is about to doze off when a mosquito appears, announcing himself in a reedy voice. One can actually feel the wind made by his wings. And slight though it is, one finds it hateful in the extreme. One is in the middle of a story when someone butts in and tries to show that he is the only clever person in the room, such a person is hateful, and so indeed is anyone, child or adult, who tries to push himself forward. One is telling a story about old times, when someone breaks in with a little detail that he happens to know, implying that one's own version is inaccurate.
0: Tell me why you chose that.
1: I mean, first of all, absolutely revolutionary about this woman in 900 and something AD observing male behavior right and putting it down on paper it was a long time until that became a more more common practice for 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 us writers i guess right like being being able to turn men into a subject of scrutiny and mm-hmm. observation it it has taken us a really long time to to be able to reproduce in in, and when I say us, I mean, I mean, female writers, it certainly took me a long time um, to reproduce the gaze that we were trained to have, right, which is a gaze that looked at female intimacy, and at sort of the the body of of a woman, and and, and could kind of be voyeurs of that, but, but not so with, with the male body and, and male behavior, right? There's I mean, we've had to unlearn so many things, but, but, but in particular, in, in 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 sort of in in narrative gaze, I think we've just reproduced the the male gaze over the female naked body, so to speak. Right, nakedness sort of said here more as a metaphor than 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 literally. And I and I when I read, say, Shonagon the first time, I must have been in my my early twenties, and I. I thought, well, wow, right? I mean, there, there is, there is this piercing gaze that a woman can can reproduce on the page about sort of the intricacies and the the small details of male behavior that that I had I hadn't read until I hadn't really uh, had contact with until 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 then, right? I mean, happily, things are moving on now, finally, rather quickly, but but. It wasn't easy for a long time for me to, to find this kind of gaze.
0: Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard to write or changed a lot from the first draft.
1: So what I'm going to read to you is a couple of paragraphs from the novel that I don't even know if these, these, two, are, these two paragraphs are the final version, but this is a, the document I opened. Um, but for a while, I thought... It was a very naive thought um, that I could write *Lost Children Archive* simultaneously in Spanish and English, because I didn't—I I wasn't yet convinced about which language I should use—and um, and then I thought, well, why don't I just do it simultaneously? And of course, that that plan didn't work out. I mean, I, a, a, a novel is a lot more than just crafting sentences, right? You have to inhabit a rhythm. And a kind of respiration, right? That much like dancing or swimming, um, so you can't stop all the time and and kind of go back and forth and and go from one language to the other. But for some fragments in this novel, I did do that. I wrote I wrote kind of simultaneously, like a sentence in Spanish, then one in English, and and then another one in in English, and then that would uh, kind of change what I had originally written in Spanish, and so on and so forth. Right? There was this kind of ping pong. Um, and this is one of those, those fragments. She fills the space in the car with the warmth of her cub breath, her tiny milk teeth, a little too separated from each other, light up in her face whenever she articulates new difficult words, saguaro, words like sarcasm, not concepts, just words, consequences, cemetery, jacaranda, scapulary. Then quite suddenly she may be tires of being in the world, becomes quiet looks out the window and says nothing. Perhaps it is in those stretched out moments in which they suddenly meet the world in silence that our children begin to grow apart from us and become unfathomable. Don't stop being a little girl, I think, but of course I don't say it. She looks out the window and yawns. I don't know what she's thinking, what she knows and doesn't know. I don't know if she sees the same world I see, outside the car, The brutalized, almost lunar landscape stretches on indefinitely. Always defend yourself from this empty, fucked up world, I want to say to her. Cover it with your thumb. But of course I keep quiet. She is quiet. She scans the view outside the window and then scans me from who knows which long distance to make sure I'm not looking at her when she slips her thumb into her mouth. She sucks her thumb and in the back seat, a different silence settles. Her thoughts are slowing down, her body muscles yielding, her respiration layering quietude over unrest. Slowly she is absent, erased from me, slipping back into herself. She doesn't know this yet, but this is how it all ends. All of us, alone together. Her thumb, sucked, pumped, swells with saliva, then slowly slips out as she slides into sleep. She closes her eyes, dreams horses,
0: do you want to say anything else about that?
1: That the rhythm here was was very much a product of this kind of going back and forth between Spanish and English. But at the same time, I wanted there to be, especially towards the end, like a, a rhythm, the same kind of rhythm of thumb sucking. Right? It was interesting because I remember that in English, because there are many more monosyllabic words in English than there are in Spanish, it was a lot easier. I could have that thump, sucked, pumped. That that kind of reproduces this 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 beat that is a beat um, of a child sucking his or her thumb. And in Spanish, but Spanish usually has much longer words, so it was really difficult to to find a way in this back and forth that I was attempting with a simultaneous translation to 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 achieve a similar to to have the two fragments sound similar, even though though they were written in different languages, if you know what I mean. Where do you write? I write anywhere, really. I mean, I, I like listening to the sounds. I don't I don't need to be in a quiet, isolated space when I'm writing notes. For a novel, on the contrary, I, I like to be um, around things and people because I, I usually take notes of what is going on around me and that is, like, the raw material for all of my fiction. I'm more like a document, I, I document more than I fictionalize. Or I fictionalize, but I only fictionalize after I've documented a lot. Um, so I really, in that, in in early stages, I write anywhere. But then there is a moment in which I am sort of deeply, very deeply inhabiting the world of, of, a, of a novel or a book, and there I have to, to write in, in certain isolation and usually late at night when everything is quiet and mostly, in, in, in that case, mostly in, in, my, in my studio.
0: What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I don't think I've ever felt the need to get away from
1: writing. I um, in kind of, like, run away from it. But I, but I swim. I swim almost every day. And I... I really cherish that that space of just breathing and and being silent. And usually, I usually swim in the morning, so I like to start my day in, in 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 that space
0: of of silence. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I
1: have two or three very close friends who I trust very much as readers, and it's usually it's usually them who who have
0: who have to. Read the first draft. <laughs> How have you dealt with rejection?
1: I mean, at a, I guess in, in different stages, right? Uh, first, I guess by, by, by just feeling miserably rejected. But, you know, I think when I was younger, rejection felt like the dead end um, of a street. And that was it. There was not never going to be another opportunity. Never, like this editor said no that's it right this piece has nothing um, but but as time has has passed i one thing one thing that i think i have have learned is is to to be patient with with work and and it's often the case that when something is rejected it can be turned into an opportunity for for thinking more about that piece and 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 also thinking where that piece really really fits. Um, there, are, right? There's so many publishing spaces, and I think that um, we often kind of automatically think of just the two or three that we want and we like, and that. But but there's so many, and sometimes uh, a piece just better fits in another, right? So I think I think I'm I have gotten a little bit better about about dealing with rejection because I. I am patient in a way that I wasn't in my twenties.
0: And what is your favorite word?
1: My favorite word in Spanish is ultramarino, which means, which is in English ultramarine, I guess. But I don't, I don't like the sound of it in English as much as I do in Spanish. Ultramarino comes like from ultra, beyond, and um, marino from the sea, like from beyond the sea. Um, And I guess that I like that word because one of the, no, actually the first thing I ever read written by, uh, a family member who had already passed with my, my, my grandfather. Um, I never knew him, but, but one day I came across his letters. They were, they were stored in some boxes in my father's house. And I, and I, and I read, and I read them and, uh, he, he spoke about the ultramarine stores in Mexico where products of uh, his hometown in Italy could be found. It was like a very, very, it was, there was a novelty, I guess, or in the letter he he was talking about this new ultramarine store where he could, um, that's what, I guess that's what delis were called in Mexico. They were ultramarine stores.
0: You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest was Valeria Luiselli, author of The Lost Children Archive. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.